18. If you weren't with us the last couple of weeks, I highly encourage you to go back and grab the messages. Because we need to know how we build up to this point. Moses had spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, and he had it laid on his heart to see this bondage that the Jews were in to free them from this bondage. So Moses went out and killed an Egyptian, hit him in the sand. And so therefore, there's this first point that Moses, by his own power, was going to free the Jews. It wasn't going to work. By his own power, he was going to take out Egyptians one by one, hide them from everybody. It wasn't going to work, as has been said many times. The Bible said that Moses looked to the left, looked to the right, but Moses never looked up to see what God had planned for him. So Moses had to flee for his life was at stake. He then goes to the wilderness. He meets his wife. And then he spends the next 40 years being a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. So now at 80, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says, Now it's time. It's time for you to go back. And really what you have here in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 is excuse after excuse after excuse why Moses didn't want to go do it. Forty years ago, he was going to take out Egyptians one by one, bury them in the sand. Forty years later, now it's, Lord, send somebody else. I can't speak. I can't do this. I can't. And it was really last week was a chapter on getting rid of all your excuses and saying, Lord, if you've called me to do this, you're also going to empower me to do this. So this is where we left off last week now. As the Lord has called Moses, he'd made the calling clear. What you have here in chapter 4 really is a bit of a background of what Moses does to get ready to go to Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 5, he has his first encounter with Pharaoh. Now remember, this is hundreds of years after Joseph had died. So what has happened now, the Egyptians have kind of turned on the Jews, if you will, and are now using them as a slave labor. So Moses, 80 years old, what do we have here? Verse 18 of chapter 4. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hands. So Moses sends his family away, which you see here, he's getting ready to send them away, I should say. He doesn't get reunited with them until Exodus 18, and he goes now on this mission to Egypt to see Israel be saved. Now he takes the rod with him. And if you weren't with us last week, once again, you need to understand what that rod represents. That rod represents his calling. That rod represented him as a shepherd. And he threw that rod down. And that rod now became this miraculous tool in his hand. And we had a lot of points last week about what does that mean? What does that represent? But the Lord has called him something bigger and better and more miraculous. Leave that behind, that calling of the shepherd, and now take the calling to lead Israel. So he takes that rod with him. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. Once again, God is making this very clear. If you were with us on Sunday, anytime God lays down any type of judgment, he makes it abundantly clear. Abundantly clear. And so God is making very clear to Pharaoh, here's the deal. You let my people go, you have no problems. You choose to not let my people go, he makes it very clear right here in verse 23, I will kill your son, your firstborn. You took advantage of my child or take advantage of your child, so therefore, Pharaoh, let them go. Now, that verse 21, but I will harden his heart, we're going to get into that here in a couple of chapters. Really, the simple teaching point is this. Where it says that God will harden his heart, what it's really saying is Pharaoh makes a choice to reject God. And that's what happens through the first three miracles. Pharaoh hardened his heart first. Pharaoh made a choice to harden his heart. Then God went with that choice. 
That's really what it's talking about. It's not that God is keeping Pharaoh from what doing is right. Pharaoh, for the, through the first three miracles, decides to harden his own heart. From that point forward, God says, Pharaoh, if you want to harden your heart, then we're going to go with this. It's a choice that he made. Now, that introduces us to these three verses, which are some of the strangest passages in the entire Bible. came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Sipporah took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Once again, you don't see that on a lot of Christian t-shirts. You don't see that on a lot of... uh, People don't make that their life verse. You know, you ever talk about somebody making a life verse? That's not a life verse you see too much here. So Moses is on the way to go take care of Egypt. God's on the way to kill Moses. Zipporah puts two and two together. Zipporah is Moses' wife. Finds out Moses didn't circumcise her kid. So she goes and circumcises her kid for him. Takes a foreskin, throws at his feet. And says, surely you're a husband of blood to me. So God says, good enough. And then verse 27, and the Lord said to Aaron, and we just kind of go on. That's a crazy little passage. First off, you need to understand a little bit of background here. You know what the name Zipporah means? Zipporah means don't mess with her. That's what Zipporah means, and I'm just kidding. I thought it was funnier when I was taking notes. Zipporah's name actually means sparrow, a tiny little thing. You don't mess with Zipporah. You don't mess with her. Now, what's going on? Why is God on the way to kill Moses? Verse 24. Very simply put, Moses failed as the leader of his house. And how can God expect Moses to lead Israel if Moses can't lead his own house? How does he expect Moses to lead Israel out of this nation and be the leader of millions when Moses can't even get his own two boys circumcised? Back in Genesis 17, God made it abundantly clear to Abraham, this is the sign of the covenant. If anybody chooses to not go this route, let them be kicked out. That's how big of a deal it was to God. So for Moses to fail in this area, he is failing as a leader. And since he's failing as a leader, God says, Moses, I don't want to use you. I'm telling you right now, one of the biggest plagues facing the body of Christ today are men not being spiritual leaders when they're supposed to be spiritual leaders. That is a problem. It is a big problem. Go with me, if you will, real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. God makes it so clear what is called of us as men. And I'm not going to go to every passage, but this is just one of my favorites here, of just part of the godly calling that we see as men. And Moses failed in that area. Zipporah had to step up and do it. And God says, Moses, I'm not going to use you if you're not going to be the godly leader. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Great passages here on just what it means to be of the Lord. Start in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel... And the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. How simple is that? Guys, just do that. Verse 7, teach God's word to the kids. When you sit down at supper, talk about the Lord. You don't have to talk about Him legalistically. But we do most of our devotions is at the supper table because there's all seven of us right there. When you walk by the way, 
When we walk through the zoo, we talk about the different days. Okay, what day did God create the zebras? Okay, what day did God create the birds? Things like that. When you lie down, when you rise up, when they lie down, our last thing we do at night is prayer requests. When they rise up, the first thing we do is devotions. Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I had the boys just last week to say, okay, pick a verse that you like, write that down, and stick that up someplace where you're going to see it. Just take these things and apply it. The phrase I like to use is men are supposed to be loving leaders. Loving leaders. Now, note they're not supposed to be dictators. I see men think that leadership is being a dictator. This is my house. God put me in charge of this house, and whatever I say goes. That's not being a loving leader. I see men also being an invisible leader. They lead by how? Well, I'm just going to lead by providing for my family. I'm just going to lead by making sure the yard gets mowed. I'm just going to lead by being there. No, this is an active role as a man being a loving leader. And it doesn't matter if you have kids or you don't have kids. If you're in a marriage relationship, God has called you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That is your greatest calling that he has given you. That's a picture of Jesus and us. A lot of times as men, we fail. That's why one of the requirements for leadership in a church in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is one of the requirements is how does the man take care of his own house? And I'm telling you right now, as a pastor and as your pastor, that's one of the scariest verses I look at. I look at my boys and it's like, oh, okay, guys, come on. If you guys screw up, I'm out of a job. Do you guys realize that? (laughs) But the problem is this. My kids are going to screw up. They're being raised in front of you. And you guys have some understanding that they're going to grow up to be these wonderful whatever. I don't know. they got sin nature just like everybody else. And there's that whole pastor's kids thing. And really what it comes down to is this. We're all a team, the body of Christ, trying to encourage each other. And what we need is we need men to be the leaders they've been called to be. We need men to take their families and say, I want to lead you. I want to lead you spiritually. It doesn't mean you're doing two hours of Bible study every night getting into the Hebrew and Greek. But maybe it's just saying, hey, here's the verse for our family this week. I'm going to put it up on the fridge so we can look at it. Maybe it's just as simple as a man texting his wife every now and then saying, hey, is there something I can pray for you about? Could you pray for me about this? It's taking the opportunities we have to lead. Because here's what happens. If men don't lead, the family falls apart. It really does. So now the question usually comes up for the women. I don't have that spiritual leader in my house. What am I supposed to do with that then? Well, I think the scriptures here in verses 24 through 26 make it abundantly clear what you're supposed to do. Find some bloody piece of flesh, throw it at his feet, and say to him, you are a husband of blood, and just walk away. See what he says. I think that's the best thing you could do. Now, the the problem is Zipporah had to step up and do it. And to be perfectly blunt, if the man's not leading in the house, the woman's usually one to say, okay, kids, let's, let's do devotions. Okay, kids, let's get up and go to church. Okay, kids, let's remember to pray before we eat. It falls on the woman because the man's not doing it. Now, this is what happens. And in my 15 years of being a pastor out here, this is what I see. I see at first the woman saying, this is so important to me. This is vital to me. I'm going to do it. And they do it with the cheer, with the joy. Then after time, it's no longer a cheer or joy. It becomes a discouragement to them because it's not the way God intended for it to be. And so all of a sudden, this woman now has to wear two hats. She's called to be the wife. She's called to be that woman that is called there in Ephesians. But now she has to wear this other hat. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So this is what happens. So she goes through a phase generally of, I pray for my husband. I want my husband to be this man of God. And I'm seeking the Lord. It doesn't happen. And then that focus of seeing her husband change for the Lord 
becomes a bitterness and an anger then towards her husband. Until then, she gives up. And then when she gives up, finally the guy gets his attention, right? He's like, okay, I need to change. So the guy then tries to make changes. But what has happened is, as for years now, the family has reached this point of where the woman took care of things. So when the man tries to step in, now there's tension because the woman's like, well, we did fine without you for years. And it's this awful, vicious cycle. So what's the answer? The answer is really pretty simple. Let's just go to Ephesians 5, and you don't have to turn there. I'm saying, what's Ephesians 5 say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect, honor, and submit unto your husbands. Now, I know there's a whole lot more teaching points with that. But if Moses just would have led his family and took care of the circumcision, which is a really big deal, we wouldn't be in this spot. And as you study this out, look at Zipporah's reaction. Surely you are a husband of blood to me, verse 26. You are a husband of blood, throwing the foreskin at his feet. She's making a statement. She's making a point. Was she right in doing this? My personal opinion is she was right in taking care of it, but her reaction to it? No. She's reacting in anger. She's reacting in bitterness. She's reacting in all this other type of stuff. There was a marital family problem here that has then developed And really what it comes down to is men, lead your wives and wives. Pray for your husbands to become the man of God that they're supposed to be. So, real quick, now we get back to verse 27. But real quick, do we have any questions, comments about anything with that before we go on? Ryan. They did. It would, I think it's a thing that, you know, the Jews read the taxes and then really took it literally. Yeah. And then over time, made it into a public statement. Yeah, and that's exactly what they did. They would wear these little boxes on their wrists, on their heads that had little scrolls in them, just like you're saying there with the scriptures. And by the time it came to Jesus' time, it became a fashion statement. And they were wearing these big boxes on their wrists. So people would stop and say, wow, look how much scripture he's carrying. It became a legalism. It became a pride issue there. And that's something where the Lord says, once again, it's not the legalism of it. It's the heart issue. Because we can be legalistic. We can be legalistic in devotions. We can be legalistic in service. None of that stuff matters if the heart isn't right. I've shared with you before on some of these last Sundays, in some of the commentaries, excuse me, devotionals I'm reading, it really is pushing this point of look at your service for the Lord. And don't ever look at service as a closeness to Christ. So often in our walk with the Lord, we say, I must be close to Jesus. Look at everything I'm doing. That's not exactly right. Yes, you're doing a lot for the Lord, but is your heart really close to Him? We can be busy 24 hours a day, 7 days a week with Christ. But are you close to Him? Are you passionate about your relationship with Him? You can be so busy, you forget why you're serving Him. So, Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Rose. Yes. It is. That's a nice little phrase there, the rod of God in his hand, that it went from just being this staff that Moses used to lead sheep to now it's God's instrument. It's a pretty neat picture of how God just takes normal things and does miraculous things with them. Anybody else have anything here? Yeah, Betsy. Yeah. So he tells him and then 
Yeah, and that's the thing is God knew the big picture. And, and that is right. And I'm just going to be honest. And I look at myself sometimes spiritually. Or I look at myself in the spiritual mirror of life and I'm thinking, Lord, there's got to be somebody better that you can do out here at church. There's got to be somebody better that can do this. And the Lord sees a heart that I hope that is willing. He hopefully sees a heart that he says, I see what you can become, not what you are. And I think with the Lord here, you're right. The Lord saw what Moses could become, but he still knew there was this issue that had to be dealt with. And I've seen in my own Christian walk, sometimes the way the Lord makes me deal with issues is through love, grace, and mercy. He's just going to quietly through the Spirit speak to my heart, say, James, these things need to change. Or the other way he deals with it is, James, if you don't make this change, I'm making this change for you. And you're not going to like the way I do it. And that's also love, grace, and mercy. And I look at Moses here in, in God... This is kind of a tough love scenario. You know, Moses is on his way to lead Israel. Verse 24, God says, yeah, we have to take care of this. I don't think it was a shock to Moses. I think Moses knew what he was supposed to do. We can't know for sure. But if you look at verses 25 and 26, is there something where Moses didn't do the circumcision because Zipporah wasn't behind it? Is that why she's so angry at this, that you did this to my sons? We don't know. The only thing we know is this. Moses wasn't leading like he was supposed to, and God says, Moses, I can't use you as the leader unless I know you're spiritually going to do it. Kathy? That's a really good question. The one commentator I read said that they thought the son would probably be a baby, and I just think that's wishful thinking. So, uh, you know, it's been 40 years. It's been 40 years. Um, Right now, the Lord is telling me, just move on. Don't say what I'm thinking. So... We will just do that at this point. So, anybody else have any questions, comments here, or anything? Yeah, Cindy. Do you think that the Lord was waiting to see was going to do it? Yeah, I think there's a truth. That was the Lord waiting to see if Moses was going to do it. Think about this. A lot of times, how many times in our spiritual life does the Lord lay something on your heart, and he does this for me. Maybe he doesn't do this for you guys, of, James, we need to work on this. Okay, God, I got you. I'll get to you. I'll get to it. Comes back again, James, we need to work on this. Okay, God, I got you. I'll get to it. I don't get to it. The Lord then has to kick it up a couple notches. This is what the Lord does. And, and I know it's really easy to look at verse 24 and say, that's the problem I have with God. I don't see that in verse 24. I see a God that says, I love my people so much that if that guy can't take care of them, I have to get somebody else. I see a God that says, Moses, you know the rules. You know what's asked of you. Now go do it. Moses chose not to. And that's the thing about grace and mercy. They're beautiful things. But as we said in our lesson on Sunday, the Lord has made the rules abundantly clear from the beginning of time. Sin will be judged and dealt with. And if you don't want to deal with your sin, then you need to go to Christ and realize what He does. He takes care of it for us. That's the beautiful thing. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Okay. So it kind of just completely changes subjects again. Verse 27, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Now, It completely changes subjects, but I also think that's a beautiful picture of grace. God's not going to hold it over your head. Moses, it's done, it's over, let's move on. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. Remember, Aaron is three years older than Moses, so Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their afflictions, they bowed their heads in worship. Now, we're running out of time. I really wanted to get to the end of verse 21 of chapter 5. Because what happens is, 
Israel goes through a very difficult time. And I kind of feel like I'm only giving you half the lesson. But we have to end here at verse 31 just because of time restraints. I love verse 31. The people believed, and when they heard the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. Do you see what they did in verse 31? They worshiped through their afflictions. Some of your translation says misery. They worshiped through their misery. Now, that is just a straightforward point. When you are afflicted, when you are in misery, worship. We don't think that way, do we? And you've heard me say this so many times. We look at worship as something God has earned because He gave me a good week. We look at worship as something God has gotten because of look what He's done for me. God gets worship just because He's God. We look at worship of what we do out here on a Sunday morning for seven songs and Wednesday for five songs. That is a tiny element of worship in your life. Worship is you on the way to and from work, that job you hate, saying, Lord, I'm just going to praise your name to and from. Worship is you just sitting at home reading through the psalms saying, wow, this psalm is amazing. Worship doesn't mean there's music playing. Worship is in your heart. Worship is when that coworker, that friend, that family member, that spouse, that kid speaks ill of you and attacks you with words and you still stop and say, my worship is of the Lord. I worship through the affliction. Now, I know you know this, but here's the problem. When you call me up on the phone and you're in misery and you're in affliction and I tell you, worship through it, you hang up on me. I'm right because God's word is right. And this is the problem. When we look at what we're going through in the difficult times, the last thing going through our mind is worship. And we're completely wrong on that. Worship should play just an element in our life and everything we do and everything we say. I don't know how many times I've told people that have a job that just completely brings them down. Completely brings them down. I said, you've got a commute on the way to work. You have a commute on the way work. Listen to worship music on the way. Listen to worship music on the way back. Listen to God's word on the way. Listen to God's word on the way back. Let it be that heart of worship to prepare your heart so that way you don't take your job home with you to your family. You're going through a difficult time and your health is not where it's supposed to be. Worship through your affliction. Can you go with me real quick to Psalm 119? We're running out of time here, so I've got to pick up the pace a little bit. Psalm 119. And once again, I usually hear people say, well, what do I have to worship about? And you know what I always say to that? You worship the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That, that supersedes anything that you may be going through. Psalm 119, verse 65. Great little passage here on worship. You have dealt well with your servant, verse 65. O Lord, according to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Affliction brings you closer to the Lord. Affliction makes you get your eyes where they're supposed to be. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Think about that. Lord, this is good. This is good I'm going through affliction. This is good I'm going through misery. It gets me in the word more. It gets me in worship more. It gets me in prayer more. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. 
That's worshiping through affliction. We have time. I'm just going to go to one more real quick. Psalm 20. Psalm 20. It's only nine verses, so we can hit that one real quick. Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is a psalm of worshiping through affliction and misery. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifices. Selah, which means Paul, stop, think about it, meditate. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation. What do you rejoice in? Salvation. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. Worshiping through your affliction. They are worshiping the Lord because of their salvation. Verse 7, they're not trusting in chariots. They're not trusting in horses. They're not trusting in something man-made. They're trusting in the Lord to get them through. So I see Israel here. And I see Israel now in the midst of affliction and slavery and servitude. They're worshiping the Lord saying, you're still here for us. So worship through your affliction. Some of your translation says worship through your misery. We'll pick it up in chapter 5 next week. We wouldn't have time to finish it. It's after 8 here real quick. Sorry to end so abruptly, but there's about uh, 75 kids back there. We're going to pray here before I close. Does anybody have any final questions, comments, about anything before I close up? Yeah, Chris. Yeah, I think what's happening in verse 20, verse 20 is kind of giving you the overview, and then verses 21 through whatever are giving you a little bit of the details. It's like me saying one time, um, my wife and I went down to Atlanta to see a Braves game. That's the overview. On the way, we stopped in Cincinnati and Knoxville, etc. God does the same thing if you look back in Genesis. Some people talk about the two creation accounts. He has the first creation account of Genesis 1, which is the overview Then in Genesis 2, he goes back into the detail when he created man. So really what you see in verse 19 is just an overview statement. Moses is going to go down to Egypt. And then what you have in verse 20 on is the details of what happened there. Right. At this point, I believe those details there are still in the Midian. Because if you look in verses 24 and 25, Zipporah is still with them. So I I think, once again, it's just that detail of this was the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. Because if you look back at verse um, 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I knew that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. So when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So it looks like what you just have here is kind of verses 18, 19, 20, are a little bit of an overview, and really the other verses are just details of what happened. It's not that it's not in chronological order. It's just then verse 19, basically God is saying, it's time to go to Egypt. Verse 20 says, okay, we're going to go to Egypt, but there's still these details that happen. Because if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, afterward, Moses. So after all these things have happened, those are really just details given at the end of chapter 4. Anybody else have anything? Yeah, Cindy. Don't you think with affliction that we have a tendency to pray when we have an affliction and then once it's resolved or 
Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it is. And let's just be completely honest. When the going gets tough, we pray more. We're in the Word more. We're, we, we do things more. When life is going good, God has a tendency to get in the back burner a little bit. I mean, that's just a fact. And the Bible says a lot of times that he allows difficult times. And, you know, I think of Romans 5. I think of First Peter. God makes it very clear. I allow these difficult times in your life to lead you, bring you closer to me. So affliction is actually something the Lord uses to take us deeper in him. And a lot of times when life is good... Wow, it's amazing how we don't pray as much. We don't get in the Word as much. Yeah, it does. Affliction wakes us up a lot. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Jonathan. That's the thing is that worship, we have created worship to be based on us. What's going in our external circumstances. And worship is really based on our eternal heart, knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And we've got to be careful. There is an element of praise and worship of, Lord, you got me through that. Amen. Lord, you helped me through this. I praise you and I thank you for that. But ultimately, we can come into this building, we can come into our radio, we can go into the time in Word and just have a time of worship because of just who God is. That's something we just got to remember in the back of our minds here. Anybody else have anything before we close up? All right, let's pray and we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time. Help us, Lord, to worship through affliction. Help us to worship through misery. Help us as men be the godly leaders that you've called us to be. And we pray for the women in our lives just to pray for us to lead our families, Lord. And if we're not in a family situation, just help us to be the people you've called us to be, the men and women of pure hearts seeking you, wanting to love you and go deeper in you and all that we say and all that we do. Help us to never exchange busyness with you as a relationship with you. Help us just to love you with a pure heart. We thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless. And don't forget, if you're interested in getting baptized, let either me or Rich know then.